0: Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. In the final plague on Egypt, God provided salvation for all who did as he commanded. But you had to do as he commanded, not as you might want. Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series Exodus with this sermon entitled Under the Shelter of Blood, which covers Exodus chapter 12. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org.
1: Thank you for joining us today. If you've got your Bibles, turn to uh, Exodus chapter 12, and we're going to dig in this morning. We are going to cover a pretty large section of Scripture, but we're going to be centering on this text. And here's what's happening as we come into this moment. God, in his quest to free Israel from their slavery to Egypt, God has been hammering Egypt. He's been sending plague after plague after plague. He's caused the Nile River to turn to blood. He's caused frogs and gnats and flies and hail and boils to flood the land. He's killed all of their cattle. He's blotted out the sun. But when we come here to chapter 11, right before our text this morning... God God warns Pharaoh of a plague that's worse than all the others. Because this time, God is going to pass through the land. And he is going to strike down the firstborn child of every single house. Even in the house of Pharaoh. And while there will be wailing in the homes of Egypt, he tells Pharaoh that in the houses of my people, You will not even hear a dog barking, but instead there will be perfect peace. And you, Pharaoh, you will finally let my people go. You know, if we're frank with each other, this is an uncomfortable passage. But we need to hear it this morning. Because what Exodus 12 is about to give us, it's the announcement of the gospel. Of a God who is more gracious and more merciful than you and I could ever hope or imagine. Read with me now, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Till all the congregation of Israel, that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household, And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, each can eat, you shall make your count for that lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, perfect, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel "'Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. "'In this manner you shall eat it, "'with your belt fastened, "'your sandals on your feet, "'and your staff in your hand, "'and you shall eat it in haste. "'It is the Lord's Passover. "'For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night,' And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I, the Lord, see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. This is God's word. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we come as a people who are so often blind. And we pray, Lord, through your Spirit, would you give us eyes to see? Lord, would you take the text that we have before us, this text, that announces the hope of the gospel that we have in Jesus Christ. And Lord, would you move? Would you comfort the weary? Would you take the dead and would you give them life? Would you take those whose hearts are hard and Lord, would you shatter them? Not that they would be condemned, but they would be brought to the one who is truly life. And in all these things, Lord, would you show us Jesus and all of his glory and beauty. It's in his name that we ask. Amen. If you don't, may not know this about me, but uh, I'm the father of three little girls, uh, soon to be four. And uh, I'm going for the crown of girl dad. That's really my mission in life is just produce as many females as possible. But my oldest, this summer, she reached a milestone. Uh, my daughter, Mary Neal, learned to ride her bike. And it was a joyous occasion. It was one that as a dad gave me a lot of pride. But to be really, really blunt with you, I didn't expect it to be the ordeal that it was. Because as an adult, I just kind of forgot how terrifying the prospect of riding a bike would be to a child. Because think about what we're asking a child to do. We're asking a little five-year-old person who struggles not to run into the wall to climb on top of a metal contraption, to balance perfectly, rotating their legs at an even pace, and then to hurdle down the asphalt. If I'm a kid, that's terrifying. And so when I started trying to teach my daughter, because she expressed interest in running a bike, how to actually accomplish this magical feat, Um, I found myself on multiple occasions down on my hands and knees looking at my little girl and going, Mary Neal, do you trust me? Do you trust that I'm going to hold on to this bike? Do you trust that I will not let go until you tell me it's okay? Do you trust that I'm going to run alongside you and do everything in my power to make sure that if you fall, I will catch you. Do you trust me? And sweet Mary Neal, with all the love for her father that her little heart could possess, Mary Neal's response quite frequently was, No, Daddy, I absolutely do not. (laughs) And I don't blame her. Because I wouldn't trust me either. In fact, I don't think most of us would trust me. I don't think we'd trust each other. We struggle to trust. We struggle to trust because we know that we live in a world where there is danger that lurks around every corner. Where there is no really in our experience, seemingly anything that offers certainty, where everything seems fragile and everything seems fleeting. And if ever there was a year that has highlighted those realities, I think 2020 might be it. We've got disease floating around in the air, riots in the streets, the economy seems to be teetering, college football almost went away. And everywhere we look, All around us there are all these voices screaming, each one of them competing for our attention and all of them saying, listen to me because I know what is true and I know what is right And mine is the voice that you should adhere to. Mine is the voice that you should trust. And there are so many of them clamoring for our attention that if you're like me, there's a part of me that wants to cover my ears and bury my head because you don't know what to do. We wonder whose voice we can trust. Exodus 12. Exodus 12 says there's just one. It's the voice of the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who over and over and over again has shown himself in real space and time and history to be a God who doesn't just make promises, he keeps them. The God whose judgment brings us to our knees, but whose mercy in Christ gives us new life. The one who says, I am not only the one that you should trust, I am the one that you must trust because I and I alone am the Lord. I am the Redeemer. And who reveals it here first in his judgment. Over and over again in the story of the Exodus, God refers to these plagues as judgments. We heard it right here in verse 12 of the passage we just read. God says in verse 12, On the gods of Egypt... I will execute judgments. Now, let's be frank with each other. This is uncomfortable. This is not the Sunday school us just wants to dance past this, but let's sit on this for just a second. What has God been doing? God just took a nation and he burned their economy to the ground. And in the chapter right before this, God says, and here's what I'm going to do next. I'm going to kill their children. Now, we could say a lot of things about that, but I don't think we could say this God is safe. And there is a part of us. There is a little piece that wonders if he's even good. If this is the kind of God that we would even want. But before we answer that question, we need to be absolutely sure that we understand what God is doing here. Because God's judgment in these plagues, each one has a very clear and specific aim. The first is this. God's judgment are exposing the falsity of every rival to his throne. Look at verse 12. He says, on all, and notice this, the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. God says, all these other gods, all these other figures that are offering to you safety and security, every single one of them, I am going to expose them for the frauds that they are because I and I alone am the Redeemer. And if we're going to get the full weight of what this means and why God does this, we have to remember first who Pharaoh is. You know, Pharaoh is not just a guy who claims to be a king. Pharaoh is a guy who claims to be the living, breathing embodiment of the God of the Son. A man who all through the story of the Exodus has been announcing, asserting his authority over and against Yahweh's, who has been claiming to be the true sovereign and not Yahweh. In Exodus 5, when God's servant Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, Thus says the Lord, let my people go. Pharaoh's response, it's not just to shrug his shoulders and say, Who's the Lord that I should obey him? In verse 10, Pharaoh's response is to take that formula, Thus says the Lord, and flip it on its head. And he goes to God's people and says, Thus says Pharaoh, Your life's about to get harder. In Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh sees God blessing his people. They are being fruitful and multiplying just as God promised they would. They are becoming a great nation, which should be to Pharaoh a sign that God's kingdom is breaking into the world because who are these people? They are God's chosen ones through whom God is going to bring the redemption that will heal the world, that will bless not just Israel, but all the nations. And Pharaoh... Pharaoh sees that, and Pharaoh doesn't see a blessing. Pharaoh sees a threat. He sees a threat to his kingdom and his power and his authority, and so he orders his men to collect every male child in Israel and to drown them in the Nile River for 80 years. This is a man who at every turn is turning to Yahweh and said, My kingdom, not yours. I am sovereign and not you. But not only is he claiming to be the true sovereign, Pharaoh's claiming to be the true savior. And if we're gonna understand this, we're gonna have to kind of step back for a second, and you're gonna have to give me room to give a little bit of background in some Egyptian mythology. Because in ancient Egypt, here's what they believed. They believed that every single person was born sinful, and that every person, when they died, they would one day face judgment. Now, so far, so good. You know, as Christians, we would affirm all of those things. You're born sinful, one day you are going to face judgment. Here's where Egyptian mythology takes a hard left turn. When you go to the hall of judgment, where you will be judged and eventually condemned, they put your heart on a scale. And on that scale, while it is sitting there, your heart will then be forced to confess every single sin it has ever committed. And you are helpless to stop your heart from doing that. And the more you confess, the heavier your heart becomes so that finally it will sink on the scales and you will not just be judged but condemned, which is a problem because every single person, again, is born sinful, which means there's only one hope in Egypt, hope in one person, Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh was supposed to magically have the ability and notice this language because it will make sense of a lot of things that have happened in chapter 7 to 12. Pharaoh has the ability to harden your heart so that instead of confessing your sin, you could stay silent. And instead of your heart growing heavy and sinking and being condemned, your heart would stay still and it would not sink. And instead of being condemned, you would be saved. What does God do to Pharaoh? With every single plague, God says, you're no sovereign. You don't even have authority over your own people, let alone the river or the Nile or the sun, the gnats or the flies or the hail. I'm the God who created the earth and I'm the one who still controls it. And not only that, he announces in unequivocal terms, Pharaoh is no savior because he can't even save himself. God comes to Pharaoh, and he announces Pharaoh's sin. Thus says the Lord, let my people go, which implies what? You have enslaved them, you have oppressed them, you have hurt them, you have wounded them. Now is the time this ends. Repent. And what does Pharaoh do? He hardens his heart. But when the plagues start falling suddenly this man who's supposed to have the ability to harden your heart and keep you from confessing your sins, in chapters 9 and 10, his heart starts cracking because he starts confessing that he sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and against his people. And interspersed throughout it, there is also this other repeated refrain. It's not just Pharaoh hardening his heart. God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And one of the Hebrew words that describes that hardening, it's a word that also means to make heavy. What's God doing? He is publicly putting Pharaoh on display. And he is having him judged in front of the watching world. So that here is this man who claimed he could save you from condemnation and now he cannot even save himself because his heart is sinking under the weight of his sin because he can't stop confessing it. He can't stop acknowledging it because he's not the sovereign and Yahweh is. And when the plague comes through Egypt in verses 29 and 30, Pharaoh Pharaoh, can't even save the members of his own house. God, in no uncertain terms, in these plagues, he is exposing the fraudulence of Pharaoh's claims to divinity, but not only Pharaoh's, but every other rival that would ever step up and claim that they could stand, that they had power over God. Even the voices we hear today. We are surrounded by voices that claim, just like Pharaoh, that they can give us the peace and the prosperity and the security that we crave. That whisper to us that if you just have enough money, if you can just look a certain way, if you just get the approval of the right people, if you just have enough success, if you just get the right person in power or something else, if you just do this, then you will be safe, and then you will be secure But what every one of us has experienced is those things, they're always disappointing, are they? Because all they ever offer is something that's fragile and fleeting, something that might be there for a moment and feel good for a moment, but then it's gone. And even worse than that, there is this gnawing suspicion in the back of our brain this little cancer that just eats away at our conscience that seems to whisper to us that whatever these things offer, they can never actually deal with the need that is deepest of all. The need of every human being that God, through his judgments, exposes right here. Because here's where this text, I think, gets extremely uncomfortable, if it hasn't already gotten there yet. It isn't just Pharaoh and Egypt being condemned, it's me. And it's you. It's all of us. I said earlier that there's a part of us who looks at this God and who wonders if we'd even want a God like this. And my response to that question would be another question. Would you rather have a God who winks at evil? Would you rather have a God who just passes over injustice? Who looks at what your abuser did to you as a child and just shrugs his shoulders? Who looks at the horrors of the Holocaust and acts as though it is a matter of no big significance? Who would look at the sufferings of his people? who for hundreds of years have been living in slavery in Egypt, who have watched their children ripped from their hands and drowned in a river, who would look at them and say, that's not something that's worth my time. We don't want a God like that. There is in all of our hearts this longing and this cry for justice. For every wrong to be made Right for everything broken to be healed, for those who have done evil to be brought to account. Exodus 12 says that's this God. Because here is one, while he may not work in our timing, and he may not do things in the way that we would expect, but this is not a God who's indifferent to evil. Here is a God who hates evil and would destroy it in every place it would make itself known. Did you notice, did you notice what's unique about this plague? In all the other plagues, God makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt just by virtue of Israel being Israel. The hail falls in the land of Egypt, but not on the houses of Israel. The sky is darkened. But in the land of Israel, there's light. But not here. Here, Israel is spared this judgment only by the shedding of blood. Israel has to be redeemed. God says, I'm going to pass through the land and I'm going to strike the firstborn." And the only reason he says Israel does not suffer that faith is verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Don't miss the implication. Apart from the blood... Israel would suffer the same fate as Egypt. Apart from the blood, Israel would experience something that would be no different than anyone else around them. Because the curse that lies on Egypt, it is a curse that lies on them as well. Because it's not just Pharaoh who has set up a rival kingdom to Yahweh's, and it's not just Pharaoh who has raised his hand against those made in the image of God. And it's not just Pharaoh who on the day of judgment would have his heart sink on the scales. It's us. It's me. Because the evil, the evil's not just out there. It's not just in other people. It's here. It's in this room. It's in my heart. And if God is to be just, if God is to be a God who hates evil, then that means that that judgment falls on me too. It's what God warned. In Genesis chapter 2, God warned that sin would bring death. And it's that death It's that death that every single one of us lives in the fear of because there is not one in this room who has not sinned. All of us, all of us stand under the judgment that has fallen because of the sin of Adam and Eve. The sin that continues to show itself in every single one of our lives. And what's frightening is that the judgment we see here in the plagues These these aren't a blip on the radar. These are a foretaste of a day when God will come and it won't just be Pharaoh who bends his knee and confesses that Yahweh is Lord but every single person on earth. A day when God, he will no longer in his patience hold back his hand from destroying evil, but he will destroy everything that sin has tainted and restore everything that is broken. And in that moment, we have to ask ourselves, where do we go for shelter? Exodus 12 says you can't go to the gods of Egypt. You can't go to the gods of this world because just like Pharaoh, they are frauds. They have nothing. They have no power. But here's where you go. You go to the God whose justice brings us to our knees, but whose mercy, his overflowing and abundant mercy offers us new life in Christ. That mercy is everywhere in this text. God spares Israel, not because of anything they've done. God spares Israel because he provides for them The atoning sacrifice of another. Israel Israel doesn't experience safety from the plague because they're innocent. Israel experiences safety from the plague because they stand under the blood of the Passover lamb. Look at verses 1 to 13 in chapter 12. God says to Israel, I want you to go find a lamb, a perfect one, every household. And you are to take that lamb and you are to sacrifice it on one day as one body, the people of Israel, those who are mine. And you are to take the blood and you are to smear it on the doors of your houses. It will be a sign for you and a sign for me to show that this house has come under the covering of this blood. And on this night, you are to go into that house and you are to get ready to leave. Because after 400 years, slavery's power its about to snap. Because God is going to come through this land, and God is going to set you free, and God is going to destroy the firstborn of Egypt. His judgment is going to fall, and while you were in this house, you were to eat a meal. You were to take that lamb that you have sacrificed, and you are to eat it. As a tangible expression that what you have just seen in the shedding of blood, it is for you. And this, as verse 11 says, this is the Lord's Passover. When God's people will be spared God's judgment, not because of anything they've done, but because when God looks on those houses, as verse 13 says, he sees the blood of another. The Passover lamb that God has provided and upon whom God has poured out his judgment So that his people could be spared. And instead of experiencing the death they deserve. They could have life that comes only through his mercy. What distinguishes Israel and Egypt on that night. It's not ethnicity. It's not who was kind to their slaves and who wasn't. It's not who was oppressed and who wasn't. It's who came for refuge in the blood-covered house of the Passover lamb. If you came into that house, it didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter if you heard the promise of God and you believed it with all your heart and you went into that house after shedding the blood and you ate the meal and all you felt in your heart was joy and peace because you knew that God would keep that promise that you would be spared and your family would be spared and you would go free. And so the whole night you're just antsy with expectation that you're going to leave. It didn't matter if that was you or if you were the person who went through the motions but that night you were tossing and turning because you were terrified that God wasn't telling the truth. It didn't matter if you were the person that everyone would entrust their children to or if you were someone that was looked on with such disdain they wouldn't trust their garbage with. All that mattered was this. Did you come for refuge in the blood-covered house of the Passover lamb? Even before the coming of Jesus Christ, God is announcing that He is a God who saves sinners. And you see that mercy not just in the Lamb, you see it in the meal. Look at verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Then skip to verse 24. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, now just hear that. What's God doing? God's saying, before the event has even happened, God's Babe Ruth pointing at the bleachers going, here's what's coming. You're leaving. And you're going to a land I'm going to give you, even though it's presently occupied by other people. And you shall keep this service. When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared. Pause here. It doesn't say what you think it would. It doesn't say, But spared our ancestors' houses. What does it say? But spared our houses. This isn't just a memorial meal. This isn't just a meal you partake of where you look back and you see this event that your ancestors shared in and you get this wave of nostalgia that something good happened to people back then. This is a meal where generation after generation would be presented afresh with the redemption that God offers not just in the past but in the present. A redemption to be shared in where they would come as those who know they deserve judgment, but who know the God of mercy and have come for refuge under the blood of the Passover lamb. It's an offer that's not just made to ethnic Israel. It's made, as verses 43 to 49 make really plain, to anyone It doesn't matter if you were a slave or a foreigner or even an Egyptian. What mattered was this. Did you come for shelter under the blood of the Lamb? If you came by faith and received the covenant sign, that meal with all of its promises and all of its significance, it was for you as though you were a native of Israel as though you had never been a part of another tribe and part of another nation, but as though that had always been your home and always been your people and always been your hope. God is showing again and again in that table his mercy. He's announcing shelter from his judgment. When I was in high school, uh, I went back to visit some friends of mine in Texas, which is where I grew up. And uh, a buddy of mine, we were driving around doing stupid high school boy things, and, and we noticed that it seemed like a storm was coming. Not a serious one, but you know, the, the sky was dark, there was wind, some light rain, and we thought, well, this is no big deal, we'll just go to Sonic and get some food. And so we go to Sonic, we pull up in the, the little slot where they bring you your food, we order our meal... And this girl brings us our meal on the tray that hooks to the side of your car. And as she's hooking it on our car, she says, you know, you, y'all are really lucky. Because you're the last customers that we're serving today. And Casey and I kind of looked at each other like, well, what do you, what do you mean? And she goes, well, because there's a tornado coming. And we're going to go lock ourselves in the freezer. Bye. Bye. And Casey and I are just sitting there in the car. I mean, it takes a few moments for it to set in, what she's just said to us. And we immediately kind of panic. We're like, well, we've got to find shelter. I mean, we grew up in Texas. We know what tornadoes are like. We have lived through these before. We need to find some place where we will be safe. And not being the brightest of kids, we didn't think, why don't we just knock on the sonic door and ask to be let in the freezer with them. We decide the smartest move is to try to get back to my friend Casey's house 10 minutes away. And so Casey just starts hauling. He is streaking through the streets of Plano, Texas, trying to get to his house, and I'm sitting there scarfing my Sonic because if I'm going to die in a tornado, I want to die full. And we get to his house. We run out of the car. We sprint into the front door. We get into his living room, and we discover to our surprise that his entire street has decided that this is the place they want to congregate because apparently... His living room is the only one on the street that doesn't have windows. And so suddenly, we find ourselves sitting in this house, surrounded by a ragtag group of people that probably never thought for a second that day they would see each other. Or that they would be united in some kind of purpose. And yet, there we were. Every one of us hoping and praying That if that tornado touched down, if it came to this house, that its walls would give us shelter. I thought about that moment over the years. Because the more I thought about it, all of us had put our hope in a maybe. Maybe. Because if that tornado hit, it didn't matter that we were in that house. I've seen what tornadoes can do. They can knock down walls. They can suck people from the ground. If that tornado hit, there was no certainty that those walls would protect us at all. the shelter that God offers here is not based on a maybe. It is based on the promise of the eternal and unchanging God who not only makes these promises, but keeps them. And what has been announced to us in the gospel is that that is what God has done. Because what's happened in the gospel The true sovereign, the true sovereign became a true man, and he became for his people a true sacrifice, so that they would have a true savior, and there would be one who could be for them shelter in the midst of the storm of God's judgment. It's what John the Baptist saw. In John one, John the Baptist is baptizing people in the Jordan, and he looks up and he sees his cousin coming. And the Holy Spirit tells him that that person that he sees, that is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And to everyone who will listen, John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, "Behold, there he is. There's the one, the Passover Lamb, and the Passover meal we're supposed to point to. There's the one." who will finally take away all the judgment that we have been living under. There is the one that was promised. Behold the one whose broken body declares God's justice because this is not a God who passes over evil. But whose body also declares God's mercy because here is one who is willing to bear that judgment in his own body for the sake of those who did not deserve it. Because why is Jesus broken? It's not for his sins. It's not because he lived under the curse of God's wrath. It's because we did. And the God of mercy, he willingly made himself the object of judgment, the one whose blood gives cover even to the most undeserving. So that when the day finally comes, when the judgment we see here in the plagues comes in full, we as God's people would have confidence, we would have confidence that that judgment, it will pass over us even as it passed over Israel and Egypt. Because we are covered by the blood of the perfect Passover lamb. It's the mercy Jesus offers us at this table this morning. When you would come to the Passover meal, you would have been offered to eat the meat of the sacrificed lamb. It would have been an act of faith saying, God, I believe this is for me. This sacrifice is for me, that you accept this sacrifice instead of taking my life. What does Jesus do at the Passover meal with his disciples? He doesn't give them meat to eat, does he? He gives them himself. And he says, holding the bread in his hands and breaking it apart, Jesus says, take this and eat it. This is my body. And when they had eaten the bread, he took the cup, and he gave it to them, and he said, drink of it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant." which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. This is for you. Jesus, in the same way as they would have in the Passover meal, Jesus says here is not just a memorial to something that happened in the past. Here is an offer of redemption in the present. Here is peace that's not just for tomorrow. Here is peace that is for today. Here is one who in mercy offers himself to you. One who doesn't just demand your trust but deserves it because he is the one who, while you were still sinners, willingly gave his life for yours. Here is the one who loved you and gave himself for you and even now offers you his life as food for your soul, as life for your body, so that people who know that they deserve the weight of judgment could finally be set free. Here is hope in one who not only died the death we should have died, but as the one raised, he lives in the freedom that God foretold through the setting free of the captives in Egypt. The God who takes Satan and just like Pharaoh, he casts him to the ground and takes slaves and makes them children, and takes the dead and makes them alive, and who offers himself as our shelter, even this morning. When the day comes and Jesus returns, there will be only one question. It won't be, what did you do with your life? It will be, have you taken refuge in the Passover lamb, the one who takes away the sins of the world? Jesus Christ himself. Let's come and let's eat. There is only one who is the redeemer and it's the one who offers himself to you right here. Let me pray. Gracious Father, would you come? Would you minister to us now through these elements, Lord? We thank you even for the way we see your love here at this table. You give us physical, tangible signs of your grace because you know that we are embodied people. We're people who taste and touch and feel and so often we hear your promises and they feel distant, but Lord, you give us here this tangible expression that we can feel and taste on our tongue and in our mouth to know that you love us. To know that in you we have found forgiveness, that in you, Lord, we have peace. Would you seal it to our hearts now in the precious name of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen.